You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben, and today, very happy to have a guest back on the show. I actually can't even remember when you were here the first time. I have completely lost sense of years since the pandemic began. Um, but he is the one and only, a great voice on uh, modern basketball, historical basketball. Mike Prada. Mike, how you doing? Good, I'm good. You know it's going to be two years since this whole thing started pretty soon? It's um, it's two years since the NBA shutdown coming up in a few weeks. And then what's really weird to me is it's called COVID-19 because it started in November or December potentially being detected in China in 2019. So we're like on the fourth calendar year <laughs> of this. Uh, yeah, this is why I've completely lost all sense of time. Yeah, it's sort of like how the Olympics were, the 2020 Olympics were in 2021 and all that. Yeah, that st- I still haven't gotten over that. And then, of course, the, the Winter Olympics are going on right now. Do you watch the Winter Olympics? Not too much. Uh, sometimes my wife will put it on when she's tired of me watching basketball. And she's like, "Go, you have to watch on the computer. I'm, tur- I'm turning on the Olympics. Uh, apparently, there's a big thing in figure skating that happens yeah. today. Yeah, we won't spoil that for the four viewers out there that also (laughs) watch. I love the Winter Olympics. I don't know if that's because I grew up in a cold weather environment, but certainly living in California, it's very hard to find people who watch the Winter Olympics. I can't figure out what the ratings are, um, but I, I, I do have Peacock and I can get them on demand whenever I want. So bad. The ratings are bad. Spoiler (laughs) alert. Not very good. Uh, Uh, there. So speaking of, you know, ratings and things that might not be bad, um, the National Basketball Association, you are working on a book. I have no idea how much we're allowed to say about this book, if it's a top secret project. To be honest, (laughs) me neither. So, (laughs) Um, yeah, no, I've been alluding to it for like way too long. I'm at that stage where like I just need to to, like kind of get it out of my hands and I'm like reluctant to actually submit it to be uh to do the editing process the full edit but um yeah it's supposed to come in the fall that's the plan um it's with uh triumph who's the same publisher of seth partnow's new book of jake fisher's built to lose uh of a number of other titles along those lines alex wong's cover story so plan is for it to be out in the fall unless they tell me that i'm dawdling too much on final edits and and what pray tell is the book about right so they they actually pitched me this idea a couple years ago uh saying hey we have this like sort of football tactics explainer book uh we want to do one for basketball and we saw your work on the news on newsletter and at sb nation uh would you be interested in doing this? And this was so far off my radar. I never thought I would write a book. Um, and what it's kind of evolved into is um, I believe, and I think, you know, hopefully this book will illuminate that we are in a period of basketball over the last five to 10 years 
that has completely transformed so many norms. Like, I think this is the biggest change in the style of play since the shot clock. The fact that we're, it's as if you've taken the court and you've doubled the width and doubled the length. And now we're playing on a different court. And I think that we've talked so much about the three-point era and the impact of long-range shots uh, from certainly a statistical perspective, certainly from some tactics. But I still think we do not fully appreciate how fundamentally the game has changed in the last five to 10 years. And so this book is sort of an illustration of how that has happened, the downstream effects of the three-point era kind of exploding. Um, And it's going to touch everything from strategy, uh, coaching-wise. It's going to talk about some of the big-picture questions. There's a chapter on, you know, what is – why positionalist basketball, I think, is sort of a bit of a misnomer. Uh, You know, there's a chapter on that. There's a chapter on superstars and what they do. There's a chapter on sort of fast breaks. There's a number of chapters on the pick and roll, which I think we're going to talk about today. And then there's chapters on, you know, court vision and shooting mechanics. And just the theme of all of this is everything you thought you knew about the game is just completely been upended now that it's being played on double the size. And so it's sort of almost like kind of a reintroduction to this is what basketball is. You know, here are the things that you can watch for as a viewer that better understand for you to better understand what's going on, you know, because I, I just, I still think we have not, even people who are really smart, people who've been in the game a long time have not fully comprehended how much this era has transformed literally everything. Mm, like, yeah. The sport is technically the same, but it's just not. You know, the skills needed to be good at it are just so different. And I, I don't. My the hope of the book is that this will sort of reset everyone. So you'll say, okay, this is what the game is now. So what are some of the things that we thought we knew? Are they still true? Are they no longer true? Are they true again? That sort of type of thing. So what fascinates me um, just about the like big picture there is you usually get this S-curve shape when things develop, right? Things things start slowly, Naismith hangs the hoop, people figure out the rules, the jump shot comes along, and then it appeared for a while that the 50s, the 60s, the shot clock boom that you alluded to was this rapid growth where you scale right up the S-curve and then things start to taper off as everybody kind of figures stuff out. You get diminishing returns, you get these arm rate, arms races, and then people are just trying to win on the margins. And the game felt like it had kind of stabilized for a number of decades after that. And now we have this basically a secondary inflection point. And I think it's only made possible by rule changes, by having something like the three-point line come in. But to your point and, and to maybe the essence of this book, it's like, that has changed the spatial dimensions so much and humans are still only six and a half, seven feet tall, seven and seven and a half feet wide or whatever. And so exactly. Yeah. And so as long as those variables are constant, changing the width and the height and the point value and all that has completely changed the tactics. And I, I, you know, I recently did this video on the evolution of pick and roll, which is how we got talking about um, sort of these topics colliding. And it's not like the X's and O's from the 70s or 80s are extinct, right? You still have the same kind of pattern. Sometimes you can even go back and watch these old games and be like, wow, they're, they're kind of running futuristic X's and O's. 
but they're just missing this extra ingredient, which is often the three-point shot or using more space or something like that. Yeah, actually, I mean, I guess I can say this now because it's finalized and, um, you know, whatever. But the title (laughs) of the book is going to be called Spaced Out because that's basically what has happened to basketball. We have just spread it out to give it breathing room, you know. And to your point, I think about like kind of something being missing, you know. There's a one of the things I talk about in the book um, and is this concept of like the fast break and how pace and space to start with D'Antoni is not what it has essentially done. It is has merged the fast break and the half court set. Mm-hmm. So there are there aren't really separate elements of the game. You know, you're just sort of playing fast all the time because, you know, you look at those Suns teams and they're obviously a huge part of the story. They weren't like a high turnover, high pressing, like sort of you know, in your face team, they just sort of played their half court offense like so wide. I tell the story of, I don't know, have you, do you know the name John McClendon? I do not, no. Where is that his, his name is John McClendon? I, I feel like I got to make sure I'm saying it right. Uh, you know, but I was doing this research on him, and this is this sort of uh, pioneer of the fast break, John McClendon. You know, from like he was around and he was actually a pupil of James Naismith's uh, going back all the way to when Naismith was at his final days at Kentucky. He he actually transferred to or sorry, Kansas, not Kentucky. He transferred to Kansas because James Naismith was there and he wanted to get to know him. You know, there's this young African-American growing up in segregation uh, in Missouri, and he ended up becoming he couldn't play on the team at the time because of racial segregation, Mm -hmm. he ended up befriending Naismith and he kind of got this idea from Naismith that basketball is meant to be a fast game. You know, that is what he envisioned. It's meant to be up and down constantly going, you know, all the time. And so then he became a coach at, um, uh, what is now I think North Carolina central, um, and what what year is this, Mike? Just this is so like we... kind of in the the nineteen forties. Yeah. So uh, I want you to keep going, but it fascinates me how much of this stuff traces back to the twenties, the thirties, the forties. So, so well, this continue. is yeah, this is sort of what I'm building to. So this is his philosophy as he took over these teams was it's remarkably similar to seven seconds or less. He actually had a rule. He wanted to see it to play fast all the time, like just sort of get the ball up the court, run like crazy he had a rule remember this is pre-shot clock era he had a rule that everybody needs to be in the front court within four seconds it was his four second rule and he also had a rule that shots should ideally go up in the first eight seconds after you get possession sounds familiar doesn't it yeah four four seconds or faster i guess yeah <laughs> yeah so but he he uh was incredibly successful they actually um you know but his teams could never play the white schools at the time. So he kind of, people never really got to know him. Eventually, you know, there's a great story that he organized like a covert game with Duke uh, in the sixties and kept it quiet for like 50 years. And his team just ran Duke off the floor. Like they won. I don't remember what the final score is, but it was like, it was something like a hundred to like 15. It was absolutely ridiculous. Uh, he coached, he went on to coach at a couple other HBC schools. Then he got his like one chance for the Cleveland Pipers and the ABL. And he was, you know, working with the team coached by the owner was George Steinbrenner and they clashed and, you know, all this sorts of stuff. But he just sort of never really because he was because of the racial segregation at the time, like he never really got his due. He publishes a book on like sort of the fast break where he talks about, 
the game should be you search for a quick shot first and then you set offense, not the other way around. But what was missing from the reason that it took so long for like those ideas to latch on, I mean, he would be like just this is this era is like built for him, is that he had the pace part, but he didn't have the space part. And so he would ask these players all the time to be running like crazy up and down and up and down. Once you got to pace and space and you sort of gave everybody breathing room, well, now you don't have to run as far. Now it's more a matter of kind of how you align the floor. And I think that was the piece that finally got things in motion where you combine playing fast with spreading out. And I think that's sort of what's happened to the game in a lot of ways. Um, you know, a lot of these ideas sort of gain new life because you now had more room to breathe. And it was something that I think took a very long time for people to pick up on until really the last few years. Yeah, that that psychological part fascinates me because you have all these experts. They had all the pieces right in front of them. And sometimes it's just a matter of a few steps. And I think you saw it in the video I did recently on pick and roll where it's just like, oh, every couple of years they set the screen a little bit higher. And by the time you actually get to D'Antoni and the Suns, you can see the effect of that. So when it comes to the fast break, I think people from my generation might think of Paul Westhead. And Paul Westhead was a Lakers coach in the early 80s and then famously coached at Loyola out here in Los Angeles, the uh, Bo Kimball, Hank Gathers team, and they would just run up and down the floor. And in high school, we, our fast break offense was called Westhead. And the, th- the thing I remember about implementing it was it was all about the space and where you ran to on the court. And yet still, it was still too narrow compared to what we have today. You know, you're still thinking of like filling the wings, but not out wide, right? You're like coming in at the 45 degree angle um, and you're close to the slot today and things like that, where when you look at D'Antoni or any disciples running the instructional stuff, like let's take pistol or what they sometimes call 21, where, yeah, exactly. And so so the key to getting this whole thing kind of humming, if you go back to the Nash Suns, is... Where are the other three players on the court? Like, get really, really wide. Use the entire floor. That gives space to the empty weak side. And then even on the empty weak side, where is that little button hook screen for the point guard coming? That that allows the entire action to breathe and just seems to have changed the dynamics of everything, which is how you end up you know, writing a book about the, the decade-long evolution of this. Yeah, I mean, the one part, too, you also is important, too, is just if you're it requires the biggest guy on the floor to trot down and stand at the top of the key and to purposely not run fast. Yeah. You know, and that's a hard thing to hire wire. You know, one of the things that I think is really easy to take for, there are a couple of things that I think just sort of hide in plain sight um, that I think for me, like once you sort of see this stuff, it's like, Oh, this makes a lot of sense. One is that basketball of all the major sports is the only sport where you can see all 10 players in the frame at once. Hmm. Everybody who's on the field, you can always see them as a viewer, right? I mean, you can in football. You be- the goalies are always going to be back in hockey and and uh, soccer, and then in football, yeah, football you can see basically nothing. Yeah, you need that. You need that end zone or whatever the Madden view is in football. Um, but yeah, no, keep going. That's a that's a really interesting insight. Right, and the other thing that I've I noticed too, I mean, you, you can't in baseball, obviously, you can't in soccer, which is a sport that I think watching more of sort of helped me see some of this stuff because I think once you give people more room to breathe, you know, soccer commentary is just so much more spatially aware. Um, but, well, 
I th- I think related to soccer, this reminds me of it, and it might have been Seth Partnow who said this. I can't remember. The, one of the shifts you could describe is it goes back to the big man on the fast break. Instead of running to the high value area under the hoop and trying to move the ball to someone under the high value area, a huge shift is vacating the high value area and trying to essentially draw defenders away from it and then move into it at the same time as the ball. And of course, that's what they do in soccer. Yes, absolutely. And, and I also think of handball, too, where you, you literally cannot go into the high value area. So they all just sort of circle this 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 uh, this sort of arc. So you don't watch the Winter Olympics, but you've got handball X's and O's. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I watch. I love handball. What can I say? Um, but no. So but I think that's an interesting, you know, I noticed this when watching small games. If you look at sort of the NBC uh, or Turner or whatever camera, it literally is more compressed. Yep. Yeah, like it's a tighter view. So now you literally, the way the game has changed has forced the camera to be come back more, so you can actually see everything. Um, but you know, because you can see everything, you can kind of see these dynamics if you really want to look. the The challenge, of course, is, and we talked about with the legal defense. The NBA has always had a culture of individualism that I think is reflected in the illegal defense rule. And once you take that away. And you make it so that, oh, we're, we're not institutionalizing these like sort of one-on-one battles quite as obviously. It opens up a lot more of a need to spread out. Um, so I think that's a huge element of what's happened. So you sent me a little teaser from the book. And in it is this uh, description or alluding to the 1998 NBA Finals which I think most people think of as Michael Jordan's, you know, last shot with the Bulls, their sixth championship. But there was this other really fascinating X's and O's battle that was going on that, I mean, you could argue emerged from the Stockton and and Malone pick and roll offense driving what Utah was doing. Um, since, Since you wrote it, why don't you set the table what what was going on there defensively in that finals, and how was it a precursor to where we are today? Right. So the Jazz for many years ran, you know, the Stockton Malone pick and roll was just a huge, that's what their entire team was. Uh, and you saw a little bit of this in 97, but you really saw it in 98. I don't know, for whatever reason, 98 is just the year that you saw this more. The cha- The thing that they exploited, the Jazz, more than anyone, and they had like this very uh, – patterned half-court offense um, that was really difficult to stop. But at the end of the day, what they exploited is that they could take their two best players, put them on one side of the floor, put everyone else somewhere else, like not in the play, play whoever they wanted because of the illegal defense rule. That's how they were able to play Mark Eaton, Greg Ostertag, these stiffs at center. And you could not help early on that without outright switching. So that was the asymmetry that they exploited for years and years and years. Because every time you, you put in a pick and roll and you take three players out of the play and you make it two on two, there's a moment where there's an opening and you just, they just, the Stockton Malone were just so good at it. Um, you, you were not allowed for this. We won't get into the um, depths of the archaic illegal defense, but essentially you were not allowed to bring help defenders over in any kind of pre-rotation or anything like that if the offensive players were set over on one side of the court and then there was another provision for being above the three-point arc. So that's how you would get these 
you could do it in isolation. Charles Barkley, Mark Jackson, of course, had the back down that was finally outlawed in offensive five seconds. But in this two-man game, it was essentially illegal or impossible to bring people over, pre-double team off the ball. I think the only way you could do it is if you double teamed the ball. That was legal to bring an extra defender over. But otherwise, if it's the two-man game and you're sitting on the weak side, you literally had to wait until the ball came to you until the action unfolded to help. Right. Yeah. I mean, think about like kind of the overloading defense that Tom Thibodeau implemented on LeBron and how that just informs the load, the whole concept of loading up to the ball. It was institutionally almost impossible to do that. Yeah. You had to be like so precise uh, with how you timed it, but what the bulls did and what the bulls had was Scotty Pippen and Scotty Pippen is one of the smartest, longest, you know, just most incredible help defenders or man defenders, I mean, of all time. Uh, and so what they would do, and this is, I think, a precursor to, it's very much in line, I think, with, you know, some of the roaming tactics you would see uh, now where you put a big guy on the worst offensive player. What they decided was if they're going to, when when Stockton Malone sort of get into their pick and roll position on the side, what we're going to do is we're going to have Scottie Pippen guard, not, one of the guys on the perimeter, we're going to have him guard Greg Ostertag. We're going to have him guard Greg Foster. We're going to have him guard Antoine Carr. And so that way he can travel less of a distance to come help on the, the play, the pick and roll than he would if he had to guard a normal matchup. So they would force the pick and roll down to the baseline as best they could on one side. And they would bring Scotty over quickly off the big man that he was guarding so you kind of run interference and just disrupt the timing of what they did. They, they That was their approach instead of playing traditionally. And they also had Scotty trapping the ball at half court a lot to get out of John Stockton's hands. They took advantage of the fact that Greg Ostertag, Antoine Carr, these players, they were just non-threats. You could station them all the way out the three-point line, and Jerry Sloan sure tried to draw legal defense rules, but – they were not threats to actually score from there. So at a certain point, they were going to always matriculate towards the basket. And that way, they kind of solved the the numbers asymmetry that ever, the Jazz have been exploiting. It, instead of the pick and roll always being two on two, now it could be two on th- two and a half or two on three. I mean, that's the beauty of the pick and roll is it takes a two on two and, you know, for a second, it's a two on one. So... The Bulls, because Scotty was just so brilliant at how he timed his rotations, his anticipation, his ability to play man and ball, and of course the the size of the Bulls elsewhere, so that you know they weren't yielding as much space, it really disrupted like the Jazz bread and butter. I mean, Karl Malone had a horrible series in that in that series. I mean, the Jazz scored fifty four points in Game Three. Yeah, it was an absolute joke. And so, I think I think Malone actually ended up having the best of the of the uh, bunch for Utah was Stockton. Yeah, actually that's right. Yeah. Stockton got completely chipped away in that series. Um, Keep going. You had more though. Yeah. Yeah. I believe the jazz were the number one offense in the league uh, during the regular season. They scored, I think something like 80 something points per possession per hundred possessions in that series. It was not a good look. (laughs) No. So that was, I think a precursor to, you know, the battle of illegal defense. I mean, Jerry Sloan was lobbying for Pippen to be called for illegal defense the entire series. Every possession, yeah. I, I had actually forgotten about that specific dynamic. And so game three is the game where 
Pippen Pippen guards the opposing Jazz center the entire series, basically. They start this from the opening tip of game one. And what's funny is the Jazz had a rotating turnstile at center, right? Like it was, would you go to Ostertag? Would you go to Greg Foster for his jump shooting? Would you go to Antoine Carr for his post-isolation game, even though you lose a little defense? He was kind of considered an undersized center back then as well at like 6'9". He would have to guard Luke Longley or whatever it would be on the other end. Adam Keefe gets a start in one game. Yeah, I mean, it just keeps going and going. It didn't... It didn't the yeah. funny thing is today what probably would have happened is you would have seen Carmelone play the five and Shannon yep. Anderson or Chris Morris play the four. Yep. Yeah, but that was just never a consideration. Yeah. And so it reminds me of even like Draymond in 15 and 16. Just he's going to guard one of these opposing wings, whether it's Andre Roberson or uh, who was it against Memphis? Tony Allen. That um, was yeah, Tony Allen. Yeah. Where it's just like. We are going to, and and there was no legal defense then, so he could overload, pre-rotate, load up to the ball. But it was the same idea where, for whatever reason, because you're so set in your ways, you just just it, sports coaches and even in basketball, there's a there's a conservatism about your experience. They didn't even think about taking one of the centers out and going small, um, which is extra ironic because those bulls were kind of modern and that they would play Tony Kukoc at a stretch five or have Rodman be the five and play like Pippen, Harper. There's this great um, intro to game four after all this talk that I sent you right before we recorded where Bill Walton is basically describing the future of basketball. And he's, 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 like, he's like, the Bulls are brilliant and Pippen is brilliant and the trapping and all this stuff. But what makes it hum is that no matter what's going on behind the play, you've got Jordan, Pippen, Rodman, and Harper and they can all switch and do the exact same thing. And so one play that jumped out to me in rewatching this was there's early, I think it's early in game four with all this talk about illegal defense and those three players float to the weak side for Utah. And basically um, Jim Gray has the report that no one, none of the officials knew who any of the bulls were guarding, but they all looked legal because it's like, well, if he's guarding that guy, that's okay. And, you know, was it a zone where there's three guys on the weak side just saying, whoever comes into my space, I'm going to switch? This is the chaos before the illegal defense. Yeah, and that, and now since then, it's it's cleaner. You just pre-rotate. Right. I think it was um, the uh, Spencer's podcast with Haley O'Shaughnessy and Jordan Liggins. They had an episode where they interviewed Russ Granick, who was then deputy commissioner about this rule. And Russ Granick was like, yeah, I couldn't tell you what the rule was. I can't tell what the criteria was. It was very confusing. Actually, the Sonics were, I think, a, a really innovative team in this regard because what they would do is they would sort of be playing in such weird-ass places that because of the lack of spacing that everybody else had, like there was no consideration for like, hey, let's spread out and actually make them guard people. They would sort of have people, players would just sort of naturally run into the the weak side defenders post trap so it would look like they were guarding someone because they were just all right next to each other anyway you know there's just there's just so many of those examples the jazz are another one but the reason they they structured the game that way is because of the illegal defense rule you know if you are if you are determining where people can stand relative where it's like if you're at the three-point line doesn't matter where at the three-point line you are they have to be above the free throw line i think that was the way the rule worked you know it does there is no point in play and spreading the floor it doesn't what does that accomplish you know 
and they, you could bunch together. And then what the Jazz would do really well is if you know someone double teamed, then they would sort of run into opposite places and cut, and you know that they would wait until the double came, and then then they would cut. But that makes sense when you have an illegal defense rule where that. I call it a like it's, it's an asymmetry. The offense can go wherever they want, but the defense can't. How how much of this? I mean, as I think through it, kind of there's an irony that it traces back to the big man. Um, I think pre-double teaming players like Wilt Chamberlain. Well, you can't do that. You can't have zones on these guys. We want to play straight up. You mentioned the individualistic culture. And I think there's always been a tension between how much individualism and how much teamwork sort of that. That's part of what makes the five on five of basketball so interesting. But I, I like to call it, it's both an individual and a team sport at the yeah, same time. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's and, like kind of, that's one of my go-to phrases. And so then you get to the end of the, I mean, these rules evolve, no defensive three seconds, zone defense, they've been in for a while. And then you have this like formal illegal defense era that we're alluding to, which I think was 82 to 2001. 2002 is the first year where they finally say like, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, they changed the rule at the end of the 2001 season. I'm surprised you say 82. I mean, I did some research. This they they had they originally allowed zone defense in the very first yep. year of the Basketball Association of America. Yeah, which I should mention because I'm sure Curtis Harris is listening. There it is it is one of the two leagues that's that merged into the NBA, not the NBL. first year. Yeah. Yes. So they actually had as I, I I thought this research was really interesting, and I I went back to this kind of looking at some of the reactions to the 2001 rule change they had a zone a rule against they didn't have a zone rule and then there were some of these like sort of ridiculous zone defenses that were being played i think the washington capitals who were coached by red Auerbach, used to basically play a triangle and two at all times and they just stationed two players like at half court um and this these ridiculous tactics so midway through the first season they meet and immediately without unilaterally decide, okay, no more zone defense allowed. Yeah. It's too much. That's, that's amazing. The, 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 the logic is, Oh, the fans don't like this. And the, I think the, well, the press secretary was quoted, Walter Kennedy who became the commissioner was quoted as saying the fans pay the freight and the fans don't like this. That's why we're doing this. I mean, can you imagine that? Like literally just in the middle of the year, it's like, Oh, Hey, the rules have changed. I think the closest I can think of is 2003, where in the middle of the season they said seven game series in the first round. Yeah, <laughs> or or you know I, I talk about this actually in the chapter right now. The the year they put in the new synthetic ball and then just right. and then they back. Yep. Yeah, um, but I ever since then like zone defense sort of was for, from then until 2001. I thought zone defense was yeah. just not allowed. No, now I they be- they I like sort that's of correct. Yeah. They sort of like lessened some of the, or were more specific with like what is a zone and what isn't a zone. But from that point on, the logic was that the fans want to see the individual players and zone makes it hard for them to do that. Yeah. And just to clarify, 80, 82, they added all of the complexities of foul line above. Yeah. 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 So, so you get from that long history, which was great that you just alluded to out to 2002 and the thinking then was well we'll allow zone you tell me if you have a different impression my impression was we will allow zone because Shaquille O'Neal is too difficult to stop 
in the post. We're not going to like widen the lane or anything like that. We have three seconds in a wide lane to stop these big men from just standing under the basket and receiving a pass all the way back to George Mike and Will Chamberlain on and on and on. And now this is a reaction to that a dominant big man under the hoop. And yet I think without that change, we couldn't have had the revolution that took place on the perimeter that changed no question. the small. No question. Yeah, we, we talk all the time about the hand-checking uh, tightening in 2004, but I, I think I agree. For my money, the zone, the illegal defense getting eliminated after the 2001 season going into 2002 is just as significant, if not more significant, to the game we have today. I think what – I think what – the way I, I look at it, and I think you're right, it was very much a reaction in the moment to the Shacks, the uh, the big men like that, and Shaq Tim in Duncan, particular, yeah. the Duncans, and yeah. One of the things that I, I mean, the way I sort of frame it, and I want to, I think it's actually helpful that we're talking about the '98 Finals because I think actually the Jazz are like an example of this. Is that I think coaches got too good at exploiting the rule, just as a general principle, they were too good at, you know. I have this screen cap from like a Suns Magic game in the, in the 96, 1996 on my Twitter where it's like there are literally t- eight guys above the free throw line and then it's just like kind of – I forget who was posting up. I think it was it was Barkley or it was Penny Hardaway maybe. Um, so they would just – Don Nelson was like in the 19 – I want to say 1991 – he had this strategy when they played David Robinson where he took his like kind of stiff centers like Tom Tolbert and Jim Peterson and I forget who else, Alton Lister. He said, you go stand 30 feet from the hoop as far away from the ball as possible because that way David Robinson cannot double team Mitch Mitchell when he posts up a small guard or yeah. double team. That was the strategy. Coaches just got too good at this. And they got too good at saying like, oh, we're going to uh, kind of make it so that you cannot guard our superstar with a second player. Like they just got too good at it. This is why I uh, highlight 1982 because it's another story that's really fascinating to me. You didn't see this in 1983 and you didn't really see it in 84 or 85. It didn't become prevalent until I would say maybe at the earliest, the end of the eighties. It's another thing that the rule was there and it just took experimentation and time for people to be willing to move into new spaces. And a lot of those um, new tactics came from not the top teams, but a mad scientist like Don Nelson, who's like, I I mean, yeah, I got an okay club, but what can I do? And we've talked about Nelson before, whether it's this tactic in Golden State or inverted post-ups with Milwaukee in the 80s. And then my favorite Nelson story is like one of his teams with the Mavs, 96 or something like that. He's like, we're terrible. We're just going to shoot threes every time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He shoots like twice as many threes as the next closest team. Mm -hmm. Um, It's these kind of things. I I, I almost wonder with D'Antoni, have you ever gone back and looked at some of his Nuggets tenure? Because at the time to, to high school, Ben, it was completely unremarkable right but then he i comes did back not in the league. yeah yeah i always wondered if if he was trying some of those things early on like most people don't think about rick patino i wonder if he made your book as a pioneer i did look into him sort of you're talking about like the 80s the late 80s Knicks with exactly yeah you know one of the reasons i didn't mention him as much or even i mean rudy t and the rockets um was because you know, they still had, it was all still anchored on 
the big man or even like like Dwight Howard uh, and Stan Van Gundy and the magic. They're not as mentioned because it's still, it's kind of just like a more spread out version of like what the Lakers would do with Kareem in the post, you know, the four out one in and not to say that it's, you know, Patino did some other interesting things. I think with the pressing and some of the quick threes, um, but no, they, they didn't get mentioned that as much. Um, Rudy T though actually gets mentioned in the section about legal defense because he was one of the loudest people, uh, voices against the changes. Uh, and one of the reasons he justified it, which I found to be very telling, was he said, we, fans pay to see superstars. And they don't say pay to see them stifled by zone defenses. I forget what the, I have to look up what the exact quote was. Um, they want to see these superstars do what, do, do these magical things. They don't want to see them stifled by zone. If you, if you allow zone defense, they're not going to see superstars do the cool stuff that they do. And, uh, you know, looking at that 20 years later, the quote is like absurd. Yeah. Right. Like superstars. What, what the reason though he was thinking that way, I think is that this idea of we need to isolate the star and let them go one-on-one, they, they had gotten too good at doing that, that it had sort of, there was no need for a superstar to actually show off their skills. They don't have to like, it was almost like kind of rigging the game to make it too easy for them. They just sort of had to make their move. And if they saw help, they passed. But because by putting in the illegal, getting rid of the illegal defense rule, what they did is they said, we're going to kind of make it so that you have to sort of pass around and play in, in space a little, move around a little bit more. We're going to make it harder on the superstar and they're going to have to adjust. Uh, you know, we're not just going to kind of let four players be statues while they wait for the superstar to do what they do. Um, I think that was the hope. It It also seems to me that back then, because of that, the thing that scouts or developmental people indexed on was can you create your own shot can you can you isolate like how good of an isolation player are you and if you have maybe two good isolation players as long as they don't overlap like kareem and adrian dantley or something like that now you've got your really really good team um i think of someone like reggie miller who was criticized for using screens even though he probably played more on ball than many people remember and just that idea of the the spirit of what you're trying to do is to get one superstar with the ball and have him cook and go to work. This is also, by the way, Mike, why I think we're in a passing revolution right now. Because uh, there's right? a there's a chapter on this too. Yeah, because that shifts everything. Go ahead. Yeah, I think the um, it is remarkable how this is another thing that I I'm with you. It hides in plain sight. Some of these passes that players throw now that just seem normal are just completely absurd. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like when you think about it historically, I, there's a one that I referenced that like Taylor Horton Tucker throws at the end of a, a regular season game two years ago where he's like driving baseline. He's like sort of leaping. He's like kind of double clutching as he like sort of falls out of bounds. And then he sort of whips it to the left wing calling out of bounds to his right. And like that didn't even make the replay of like the highlights. Yeah. It's just sort of, but that, that's it. Yeah. So uh, you and I are on the same page there, but yeah, I think, I think that's sort of what happened is that like kind of because coaches almost got too good at making life easier for the superstar, we didn't actually get to see them cook, do, be their best. It was like the, the rigging the game to make it too easy with these tactics. And that I think is what they, the league was trying to change. And I think it took some time because it required a major mindset shift with a lot of these guys. Um, 
And I referenced the 2004 finals that Detroit won over the Lakers as a key turning point because that was the first time a team really employed like an overload defense to stop an ISO, these ISO players. And the Lakers two stars just kept banging and banging and banging away. And Detroit, they, they played right into Detroit's hands. And so that informed some of the stuff we saw later in the decade with like Dwayne Wade and LeBron James and some of those players having to learn how to be manipulators in addition to scorers. Yeah, that whole period is almost like a like a proto period for for what we've actually finally seemingly settled into in the last few years, right? Where you go back and you watch those heat finals. And I think many of us, um, especially the hipster basketball community, think of like the Spurs heat finals. But you could see the exact same thing in 2012 in the Heat's run and then shifting Bosch to the five and playing small ball or even in that Mavs series in 2011 just some of these dynamics of like okay we've got pick and roll we've got a third defender helping where are the pieces how far is the rotation do you have a skip pass I mean I've often said LeBron James is the most prolific skip passer in NBA history but there's a big asterisk in that sentence which is there weren't a lot of skip passes to be had Right. Based on the setup in the 80s and the 90s for most players. I mean, outside of like maybe Magic, Michael, a handful of other guys, it was really hard to have these constant sort of geometric structures where your best players were constantly in that pick your poison. Do you want me to score or are you going to pressure me and I'm going to pass? And the space of today's game has made that almost everything all the time, right? Like if you overload, I got to find the right pass. And then all of our X's and O's as a team in these situations have to be about setting up the right angles. So we get a high value look or we get an extra pass for the corner three or whatever it may be. Now I would phrase it a little bit differently uh, to make the same point, which is the, you have to do that now to get that out, what you're describing to pick your poison. Before when Alito defense was there, you didn't have to space the floor to get that. It was institutionalized. Yeah, that's yeah, sort that's of what point. has changed. And now it, it took a little bit of time for people to sort of figure that out. That like you actually have to. A part of it is you know defenses. I think went first a little bit in this evolution. Um, you know, there's the Suns and what they did, which uh, was interesting. I think some in some ways, I think the pace that they played at was more more revolutionary than the space they played at. Um, because, you know, if you look at some of the stats, they still use less of the shot clock than teams, a lot of teams of this era. Um, it's just that, they, that, that their impact, I think, for certainly the space for sure, but it was just they, I think, were the first team that merged the fast break and the half court set to where it's just like we're just playing quickly all the time. But, you know, I'm trying to think where, but the defense in terms of the sort of skip pass overload element that you're talking about, that I think started with like the Detroit. Detroit of the mid 2000s was the first team that kind of was like, let's take our man to man defense and just sort of plus it up and overload. And then Boston with Thibodeau, that was the other team that really kind of took it to another level where we're now we're not just trapping on the ball, but we're also sending four guys to the strong side and we're going to make it so that you have to beat us for the skip pass. I mean, there's no reason to throw a skip pass whenever, when, you know, there aren't fewer players on the opposite side. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So, and then that, I think incubated some of the stuff you saw with Dallas's zone in the 2011 finals and then the, the, the Chris Bosch and the pace and space of the heat. Um, and then their blitzing, I think really inspired what happened with the Spurs. And then that sort of plus up to the Warriors. 
So, yeah, I think it's been very much a defensive thing. You know, I want to go to a point that you mentioned that it's not always the best teams that figure this out first. To me, the most fascinating thing about the last five, ten years, and what's a huge theme in this book, is the arms race between a arms race cold war between golden state and houston to me where where you have golden state that's like the kind of the staff and draymond and all of them are sort of seen as the sort of patron saints of this new era but it's houston is the one that's like what if we take all this stuff literally <laughs> <laughs> and it's like the the disdain those two teams have for each other and the nature of their rivalry i think the other it sort of shoved the game so far forward to have that you know, where it's like art versus science. Um, and I think in some ways Houston was more uh, influential to what's happening today than Golden State was um, because they were the ones that were willing to kind of go all the way to the edge. I think an interesting question, just based on that rivalry in those two teams, is were the Warriors, and and we can connect it to Houston as well, were the Warriors more um, revolutionary with their offense or with their defense? It's a good right? question. Right? Yeah. Yeah. What do you think? Uh, that's a good question. I uh, The cop-out answer is both. <laughs> it is. Yeah. That is, that is the I mean, cop-out like, answer. Yeah. I, I'll say it this way. I think they were more intentional with revolutionizing their offense than their defense. The dr- whole Draymond starting thing is a, was a total accident. Yeah. You know, I think that's a huge element of it. Um, to me, the, their central revolutionary quality on offense, you know, once you strip away, like, sort of all the X's and O's of it, you know, the split cuts and the, the constant motion, what they said was, like, what if we, like, kind of can create chaos as much as possible? They are the first outside-in team in the NBA. Even these other teams that spread it out, their primary goal was, again, I think, to use your Seth Partner, the analogy that he had, let's, let's kind of – rush the high value area the warriors high value area was 30 feet away they were the first team that kind of really inverted that concept uh and the 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 speed that they played at the audacity of the shooting that they had the constant motion the ability for step to pull up from like literally anywhere at any time for any player to be starting the play or ending the play that was i think their most revolutionary quality on offense um so I, I don't I think what Houston did instead was sort of like, let's just like kind of spread the floor as far as possible. And it's it's an order. Um, it's an order versus chaos thing. Right. In the sense that Absolutely. Houston said, we're going to put our guys in specific spots and then we're going to basically create this rigid structure and strain it. And you have to react. And that point starts with James Harden and it finishes somewhere else. And then on defense, the the literalism again of like no we will switch every we will just we will stand still you you will think we're in a zone yeah yeah um go ahead the the defense is interesting <laughs> i i think probably i would still say the offense if only because the defense the switching that they did was i think on the backs of this sort of drop uh movement that you saw with Thibodeau first and then the Pacers and the Warriors before that Steve Kerr got there was were a drop heavy team. Mm. And the way they switched was kind of layering that on top of the drop, where it's like we drop to contain the pick and roll, to keep it two on two. Switching is a, just a different way to contain the pick and roll. And then they sort of layer everything else on top of that. So obviously what they did defensively was revolutionary. Um, but I, I think it still was grounded in something that already existed. So I did a video earlier this this season on the Warriors defense, and I would argue, 
Great Thank video, you. yes. Thank you. I would argue that they're continuing to evolve even today. So let's leave with this even juicier question, Mike. It's just a layup to finish with. Um, where do you think we're going? I'm constantly thinking about this because I know it takes us a long time as a league, as a sport at the NBA level to exploit some of these advantages, mismatches, rules, whatever. What are you seeing this season um, in terms of these tactics or X's and O's? And, and where do you think it's headed? I'm glad you mentioned the Warriors, and that was a great video that you did. Uh, you had I, I don't I don't know if it was you or uh, other people you work with had the video Minnesota and D'Angelo Russell's new Roman role. Yep, um, their defense has obviously fallen off. That the was that was the there. other Mike. That was Mike. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but one of the things that I've noticed this year more than any is there is a collective emphasis on you know it used to be that like you wanted to protect the basket. Right. And you want to protect the rim. One of the things I'm seeing a lot more of is that there is an understanding that it's not really the rim that is the most powerful thing we want to protect. It's sort of that like area up high in the paint, like the higher pickup point where now you're you can pick up your dribble and go one, two to the rim. Sort of maybe like it's kind of like the nail area or maybe it's a little lower. And, you know, I, I think the first time I really noticed this was uh, in Miami when Miami stifled Milwaukee a couple years ago with sort of their kind of constant shifting in and out. So I called it like it was like they were stunt doubling, which is they made it seem like they're always doubling, but they're they're doing it so early and in advance that. Giannis just never could get all the way downhill. Is that in the bubble you're referring to? Yes, yes, yeah. the bubble the bubble playoffs. Um, I'm seeing a lot more of that institutionalized this year, no matter what your scheme is. It's that area of the floor, like kind of the point where you can be one step from the rim, where you can kind of sort of get by the initial first line of defense, and then you can either finish or draw defenders and kick out. That is now an area that we need to guard that we need to protect. And you're seeing a lot more players coming off shooters to kind of contain that area and then spraying back out. That's interesting. So, so is this, um, is this more of a thing related to the floater itself? Or is it that if you actually, you're creating so much pressure on that part of the floor that there comes sort of, uh, to paraphrase Phil Jackson, like a moment of truth, a moment of decision, that if you let a ball handler with a live dribble get to a certain spot, he can then go into his strides and finish or draw a foul or lay it off for a layup or something like that. Is that what you're thinking of, that containing that area? Yeah, I think it's more of the second one. And I think yeah. the thing you add on now with the way the game is, is the kickouts to the three and to the shooters that are sliding into different spots. And now the, you know, the big, the 45 cutters who are sort of coming from the top of the key or the baseline drifters kind of getting to the baseline, these kind of hot spots on the floor. I think it's more of that second one. What I think the league sort of collectively realized, I, I look at 2019 as kind of an interesting turning point or 2019-20 that b before the bubble year, that was the year where, four of the top 10 defenses also allowed the most threes. I think you had Milwaukee, you had Toronto, you had Miami. Those are sort of the three I, I note where they're all really good defenses that also allowed a ton of threes. And that for a long time was like, well, you can't do that. But what they decided in varying ways, and I think actually the Toronto-Miami format is more prevalent now, is there are certain types of threes that we are willing to allow. 
we are willing to allow threes from north-south movement where you're sort of swinging the ball around. And, okay, we can't get out to that 27-footer all the way, but that three will be okay with what we cannot have. And what triggers all the other stuff that really scares us is we cannot let you get into the paint and then kick out. Those are the threes that we want to prevent. We cannot let you sort of get the pressure that compresses us too much to where we're reacting with the way we compress our defense versus being proactive. And then it's just the blender. I mean, it's like the, like, it's like the Utah style. We cannot allow those types of, of shots. And so you, like one of the things that I've noticed is it is this trend for more zones. I'm sure you've seen this more zone defense outright. Have you ever noticed like sort of where the pickup, like how the zone looks? I noticed this first when I watched Miami, they the 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 gap between the front and back line of the Miami zone is massive. Their two guys up top are like out beyond the three point line. It's sort of like it, it's almost like a two zero two or two zero three instead of a two three. It's I I think Miami especially does that. But I mean, correct me if I'm wrong. I think this ties back to your last point when you're thinking about like the north south three. Aren't you saying? hey, if I help one pass away or in a zone situation, if I'm up on the ball at the top and containing the ball screening action, containing penetration, but you swing it to that wing and that wing is 27 feet from the basket and I need to slide back over from the top to help because I'm in a zone or I've gapped over a little bit because I'm in man, I'm willing to live with that. Let's call it the Eric Gordon three, right? Just like that super wide space catch and shoot versus the three when we're in rotation and it's just chaos. And those, those are the threes that you're towing up the line in rhythm, catching the ball, not from the wing, if you will, from the side, but almost like a, a manager is passing you the ball in practice from inside the paint or under the hoop back out to you and you step into your shot. Is that what you're thinking of when yes. you sort of contrast those? Yeah, and I think that to the point about the Eric Gordon type of three, the thing that is also happening is that we may be gapping more towards the ball, but like there's more of a collective understanding that there's a guy coming over that's going to gap that to prevent that person from coming into the lane. I think there's a lot better spatial awareness defensively um, on those spaces. I think there's a lot more better off-ball switching. I think we talk a lot about on-ball switching, but I think off-ball players are just more up for it. I mean, have you, the, the, the X-out tactic where, you know, the you don't necessarily run back to the shooter you you originally guarded. I mean that is like right there. That is a a way to combat the most dangerous thing, which is all that ball movement. Um, so yeah, I think I think that's what I'm seeing a lot more. And you, you, there are a lot of different forms of that. You know, Golden State, as you described, is just so good at overloading to the middle. And I, you know, one of the things too, like that I, I mentioned in the book is that like kind of the very concept of closing out on shooters, t- the technique is like totally changed from the way it was years ago. Yeah. Talk about that if you can, if that's not too, too top secret. It's uh, I don't want to give too much away, but I think the, we had been closing out on shooters wrong for, for hundreds of, for 50 years. And only now have we realized that? And I think that's also what's powering a little bit of like, Hey, it's okay. If like, kind of, we help off this, this shooter to kind of contain penetration because, Hey, we're, we know how to close out to that guy better. Yeah. Do, uh, is the, is the simplest way to summarize the difference that in the old days, 
you used to kind of kamikaze yourself to attempt to either bother his shot or um, move him in some way? Or are you thinking choppy feet? Like, like what is the, if you can just summarize, what, maybe you don't want to, I don't know, but if you can just summarize, what do you think that biggest change has been? Choppy feet is wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just yeah. say that. Yeah. Um, that's a good place. That's a good place as any. To, <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> to that's close. sort of what that's what I want the book to be is like sort of you have these assumptions, right? You think these things that are always true. Like one of the things is like, why do we call it a pick and roll? There's yeah. so how often is it that a pick and roll involves a hard pick and a hard roll? Sometimes. Sometimes. Sometimes it is neither. Sometimes it's both. So, I mean, I, why do we call it a pick and roll? Is there an etymology? I, I don't even know the etymology of the term. I don't, yeah. I don't know the answer, but it's sort of one of those questions that I, I tried to grapple with is like, because of the way the game is spread out, you know, you're almost essentially picking and rolling into many different places now. So like, why do we, I think that can kind of trip people up to just sort of describe it as a pick and roll, where it's like you have this vision of something that is not what it is anymore. Well, I think the other area that it's tripped people up is one of my fetishes, which is the off-ball game. Right. And drawing drawing this very hard line in the especially in the old days, I feel like it's been blurred. But when when I was growing up, it was like, oh, off ball screen. This guy needs off ball screens and there's this off ball stuff and that's movement and motion and whatever. That's different than either isolation or going into a pick and roll with the ball. And it's like it's slightly different because the ball is involved and there's a live dribble. But a lot of the dynamics and, and the sort of effects that we're talking about, you're still trying to gain a screening advantage. Sometimes you may set the screen in a hard fashion. Sometimes you may slip. Sometimes, you know, there's like the same kind of dance is taking place to a certain degree. Yeah. I mean, the game is still about turning five on five into five on four. Yeah. But just so how you do it is is different. Um, but yeah, no, I think that's, yeah, I mean, in general, I think we just don't, basketball has always had a trouble with, and this is why I think it's ironic because all the players are in the screen. Yeah. We do such a poor job of like describing what happens to all all the times and all the areas where the players don't have the ball. That's sort of like a huge theme of my coverage in general, but just like soccer, they have a better understanding of like that spatial game and how like, this thing sets up this thing and basketball we've almost gone the other way where we're not trying to quantify like every little thing we don't do a great job of i think our spatial awareness as fans has gone down at the same time that it has gone up in the game and hopefully this book will help bridge that gap um mike where can people find your work right now what else you know when when can they get the book things like that uh hopefully the book will be out in the fall I'm not really doing a whole lot right now. I need to get back at at it. You know, this book has taken up most of my time, but you can follow me on Twitter and I'm hoping to reboot the newsletter soon. I had a sort of tactical breakdown newsletter that I sort of stopped for abruptly to sort of make focus on the book. So hopefully I'm going to start that up again. The newsletter is great. I look forward to the book. Um, thanks as always for coming on and, um, yeah, if you want to support this podcast, the best way to do that is patreon.com slash thinking basketball. We've got all sorts of extra articles, content, uh, daily stats, proprietary board. We have a monthly live Q&A, uh, patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Hope you enjoyed this one. A huge thanks to Mike. Remember to check out his work. Um, I am looking forward to that book coming out later this year. Uh, and as always... 
Thanks for listening all the way to the end, and I hope you're having a great day. <laughs>